Well, good morning, uh, St. Clair. Dave said thanks for being here nice and early on a Sunday morning. I also want to honour Miranda and Charles as well. I know Miranda came to St. Clair within our first year and has just been such an integral part of our community and her vision for eating together is important. And here's why it's important, because it reflects the life of Jesus. What's quite frightening in the Gospels is how many times Jesus eats food with people far from the kingdom. That just seems to be a practice that Jesus has. He continues to do that. The reason we eat on a Sunday and we eat in our missional families is because I ask the question, how many times in a week do I eat a meal with someone not like me? I'll leave that with you because I think that's central to the way of Jesus. Um, It's great to be here. I was away for a week or so on March break. I was away with my children. And then last weekend, I was officiating Noah and Caitlin's wedding, which was delightful. So it's good to be back amongst you. And it definitely is so good to be part of a family. And if you have that, maybe you don't have this, but when I'm gone from here, I miss you people. I actually like you a lot. I'm your pastor, but I really enjoy your company. So it's great to be part of the family together. While we were away for March break, <clears throat> something really interesting happened to me. We got to the place that we were staying, and after we put everything in and looked around, uh, I went over and picked up the remote for the television, and I turned it on, and within 20 seconds of watching a TV show, the most remarkable thing happened. There were commercials. I know, I have Netflix, so I don't, and we don't have cable television. And so every, for every one minute of television, there seemed like 20 minutes of commercials. And by the end of my time on vacation, I decided that I needed to buy the fastest growing grass seed in North America because it would change my lawn and we are having problems with our lawn. I realized while I was away, consumerism was alive and well in North America. And in fact, our whole culture is based around this theme of consumerism. What was also interesting was the news items that I watched. This is my confession about watching television during Lent. I know. One day I'll be spiritual. But as I was watching news items, there seemed to be a lot based around the fear narrative. That is, everyone's out to get you. We don't have enough. We need to just hoard as much as we can because someone will take it away. And on the other hand, there was this consumption narrative. And isn't that interesting in the world in which we live? We need to consume more because someone may be out to get it. So this fear narrative in our news items seem to be driving this culture of consumption. Michael Munger, who's the director of philosophy, politics, and economics at Duke, that basically means I'm intelligent, um, in their political science department says this, The word consumer seldom appeared in print until about 1900. But starting around then, it steadily rose until it passed the word citizen. In the late 1950s, now consumer is used three more times in political discourse than consumer. Post-Second World War, uh, there was this rise in consumer culture And what's interesting to me is that seems to tie in with the narrative where God says, I'm going to make you in my image. You're going to be image bearers. And our world now seems people as consumers, not image bearers. Christopher Hedges, in his fascinating and challenging book, Empire of Illusion, says this. The wild pursuit of status and wealth has destroyed our souls and our economy. 
Families live in sprawling mansions, maybe you can relate or not to that, financed uh, with mortgages they can no longer repay. Consumers recklessly rang up coach handbags and Manolo Blahnik shoes. I don't know how to say that, so I'm obviously not quite on this wealth train uh, on credit cards because they seem to confer a sense of identity and merit. Our favourite hobby besides television used to be, until it hit us like a wave, shopping. Shopping used to be the compensation for spending five days a week in tiny cubicles. American workers are are ground down by corporations that have disempowered them, used them, and have now discarded them. That is the kind of air that we breathe every day. And I joked about the television set, but if you have any access to the internet, they now have ads that are connected to your searches. So every time, or every so often in my searching for uh, news about the English football team, ads pop up for children's clothing, because I realized my wife was looking for children's clothes. And then I think, my children do need this. And so our world, it's the water we swim in. And yet the question is, how do we, as the people of Jesus, live within the midst of this? What is our subversive nature, as Miranda beautifully said about food, for the kingdom and the kingdom economy? As a church in the season of Lent, and historically, this seems a very appropriate time to think about this. Lent is a 40-day period that the church has celebrated over the years, which is also twinned with the idea of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. And it's a period of build-up to Easter, where in the wilderness, Jesus was stripped of everything to figure out what is his identity as he relates to the Father. And so for the church, people have fasted during this time something that seems really important to them so that they can focus on God and his kingdom. As a community, we've been looking at Psalm 63, the Psalm of David in the desert, and David is crying out to God, my God, my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What does it look like to be a community that hungers after God? John Wesley famously said, I put myself on the altar, God sets me on fire, and people come to see me burn. And in a world of consumerism, I think God is looking for a community that would say, what does it look like to be set ablaze for the kingdom? And a community that become generous in how we live. This morning, the theme really is generosity. I'll talk about money because I think it is just a cultural idol we have to address. But the theme this morning is what does it look like to live a life of generosity? Because you, I know there's many people here. What I love about the St. Clair community is there are people who maybe have money, they're educated, they seem to be thriving, and there's people who really don't know where their next paycheck or their meal is going to come from. But for each of us, the question has to be, how do we live a life of generosity? The scripture Widmark read in Matthew 6 will be the framing scripture for this morning. So I'm just going to walk our way through that this morning and look at these words from Jesus as we think about generosity this morning. A bit of context that I think is really helpful for this scripture. We always say it's unclear that the scripture comes in a context. So Jesus has been given the Sermon on the Mount, which is this address 
to a community. It's kind of his manifesto of what life in the kingdom will look like. And what's interesting is the verses on money this morning come after verses around, first of all, giving to the needy, which Jesus assumes will happen. He says, when you give. Then he moves on to say, when you pray, and he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Do you think it's interesting when we see prayer related to money? I think in some way Jesus is saying, what we do when we pray is we practice the presence of God and we bring everything before God, which will include eventually our money. One question I was traumatized with this week was, how often do I pray when I spend my money? I know, there's the groans, that's terrifying. I was like, oh no, that's me too, Matt. Well, anyway, that was what I was confronted with. But interestingly, in the Lord's Prayer, it starts out with our Father, place of identity, God loves us, created the world. We'll get to that in a moment. Then he says, we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And eventually we get to our daily needs. That comes out of this rhythm that God is saying. He then moves from prayer to fasting, which is interesting. When you fast, again, Jesus says, we strip ourselves of certain things. And it's interesting that fasting comes and then Jesus talks about money. So when you focused on me and made me your priority by stripping certain things away, now let's address money. I think there's no coincidence here in in how Jesus builds it up. What also bothered me, I'm just sharing all my frustrations with the Bible this morning, is Jesus here isn't talking necessarily to the cultural elites. Jesus, it says, has the disciples who gather around him to hear the Sermon on the Mount. And then it says, uh, all the people from the surrounding countryside, these people from the different villages, they come out with Jesus. So when Jesus is addressing money, he's talking to everyone. See, if you're like me, sometimes when people talk about money, I just go, oh, I just don't have a lot of it. So obviously this message is not for me. And Jesus seems to say, oh, hello, everyone that is here, you're all included because this affects all of you in some way. So I think that's really important as we look at this. So if you're thinking money doesn't relate to me, then Jesus would include you on this to ask, what does a life of generosity look like? Verse 19 of Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, heaven and earth here are interesting. People would say heaven is the idea of life with God, not just an otherworldly place. Although I think Jesus is really addressing what are you doing with your life here and now? How will you live it? Will it be for yourself to build up things to sustain your own self, or will it be for God and his kingdom? Jesus uses the words, do not store up for yourself, which I think is Jesus's way of saying, do not hoard. There's all these shows on TV about hoarding, and it's easy to think, oh, we don't quite hoard like that. But I think Jesus's question is, what are we doing with what we have? and the money we possess. See, Jesus, I think, here would hold up stewarding against hoarding. A few years ago, I was driving in my car, and I was praying for St. Clair, and out of nowhere, I felt this phrase, Matt, there's a difference between stewarding and hoarding. 
And in our community, it related to the amazing people who are part of it and the gifts that we have. And I really felt God say, you need to give some away for the sake of the kingdom. The whole goal of St. Clair isn't to say, let's get more and more amazing people that we can keep together. It's to say, how do we steward that? That's why we're planting churches in our city, because we want to give away amazing people who can go and do that. And I think the reason for this is it's rooted back in the Genesis narrative. Right at the start of humanity itself, we see a God who invites humans to steward well. Genesis chapter 1, after God has created these beautiful things, it says this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all creation that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky over every living creature that moves along the ground. God says, I've created you and I'm giving you creation to steward. But here's what you need to remember. I created you. Here's what God is actually saying. This is my paraphrase of Genesis 1. I created it. It is so good. I love it. And it belongs to me. But I'm going to invite you to steward it for me. But it is actually mine. So could you steward it well? And we see right here in Genesis 1, the heart of God. He goes on to say this. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, that they will be for your food. God continues in Genesis 1 to say, I'm now giving this to you. So when we talk about generosity, we always go back to the very centerpiece of generosity, which is a God who is deeply generous himself. We'll see that later and we'll come to it where God sends his son for us, this generous act. But right at the heart, we see a God who is generous. And so he says to his people, I want you to be generous also, but never ever forget it doesn't belong to you. It's mine. Can you steward it for me? We see this uh, idea of generosity and lack of scarcity. I love the description of the sea. It says the rivers were teeming with life. We don't have a God who lacks. He's a God of generosity. Sometimes we see the world and we see lack, and therefore it forces us to hoard. A few years ago, I was working at Redeem University, which I absolutely loved. And we had this social justice group that we formed to think about how do we live for the sake of others and how do we fight for justice causes in our city. The people of God are always a people of justice. And in doing this, what was interesting was we got into this conversation one day, and this is how it transpired. It basically went, I want other people to flourish We have a world of lack where some lack and some have much. You know, there's been studies that show there's not a lack of enough to go around, which seems to be the Genesis narrative. The question is, most of the world hoard all of the wealth and the resources, and a lot of world don't have anything. But in the midst of conversation, what I realized is we want others to thrive. We just don't want to sacrifice ourselves because that might mean a, a change in our own lifestyle. So it's like, I'd love them to do really well. I really hope and care for that. But I just, I'm a big fan of what I have. And I'd quite like to keep that. But I'd love someone to help them out. 
And maybe God would say to us this morning, what is your responsibility in this? These two verses that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, in many ways to me, are Jesus's way of saying, what will you invest your life in? Will it be, he'll go on later in Matthew 6, the kingdom, seek first the kingdom. And if you do that, guess what? Everything else will take care of itself. Or is it your own personal pursuit and benefit? See, I have a lot of friends, myself included. Now, I do want to say this morning, wisdom with our finance is really important. I think we need to be wise. But most of the time, the conversations I'm in err on that side, which is make sure everything is okay for you. And then someday later on, start giving back. Just make sure you're secure. And I love that idea, so I've looked through the Bible for that. I'm like, I love this idea of my own benefit, and then eventually, when one day it's okay, I can give it away. And I just, if you can find it, help me, because I love that idea, but I just cannot find it in the Scripture. In fact, it's rooted in Genesis. Later on in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I am going to bless you. I wish it had stopped there. So that you can bless the nations. I will give you creation so you can steward it so others may be blessed what will we invest our life in because annoyingly for me one day we just meet jesus and he's just going to ask us not in a guilt way because he loves us dearly he's just going to say hey with the gifts you had how did you steward them for where your treasure is this is a follow-on from that there your heart will be also As I said, I think this is Jesus' way of saying, what is your life focused on? Is it the kingdom or is it consuming and having all these other things that you think will actually give you a sense of identity? See, all of Jesus' teaching is around this identity. Do you trust in who God is and are you rooted in him or are you trusting in these other things? Where is our treasure? This morning, Jesus goes on to say, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What's interesting here, if you read, if you have footnotes at the bottom of the Bible, it said in the Greek, healthy could be translated as generous, and unhealthy could be translated as stingy, which I think reminds me that Jesus was English. Stingy is such an English word. Anyway, but is your eye healthy or unhealthy? Now, and there's merit to this. I grew up with this verse being pulled out and basically saying, careful what you watch on television. Maybe no one had that. I'm sure you did in your family growing up. The eye is the lamp, so be careful what you look at, which I do think is really important. But what's interesting is, I wonder if Jesus is saying, look at how you view the world. Through your eyes, do you see the world as a place of generosity? Or do you see it as a place of scarcity that causes you to hoard? Because this is a follow-on from what has gone before. I might even say like this. Do you see entitlement or do you see gratitude? I'm owed that. You don't understand. I work hard for that. That belongs to me. Or all of this is a gift that's been given to me. 
God created it and it is just gift to get up every day and steward the gifts that I have. Will we live lives of generosity? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6, and I love this, about seeing the world through a place of gratitude or a place of entitlement. Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can with great affection. Open your lives, live openly and expansively. Do we see the world as a gift? Because if we do that, then how we live. And we invite others to within that. C.S. Lewis, when, taught, when he was once asked about finances and how much should we give away, says this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. What if we model the way of Jesus and sacrifice so that others could be blessed? There's one pastor that I really admire who lives in a major city in the world. And he said people would come. He said he's been there for 30 to 40 years. And he has had people in his office who he's counseled. And never once in 40 years has someone come in and confessed, I think I'm too greedy. He said he's had people confess everything else. But never has someone come and said, you know what, I actually think I'm too greedy. And part of that is, I think, because we look at others and we ask the question, well, how much do they have and they seem to have more? It's funny, isn't it? Our cultural narrative is uh, don't judge anyone. That's why everyone's like, oh, we can't judge anyone. But actually, the one place we seem to is with what others have. And maybe Jesus would say to us this morning, we need to fight for injustice in the world and speak up for those things. But maybe one of the questions is, how do you examine your own life? And how do you look at it and ask, what must I give away? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus, as he closes out this teaching on finances and giving, basically says, there is a competition going on here. Will you serve mammon? Will you serve money? Or will you serve God? This is a sense of a pledging of allegiance. This is Jesus really saying, who or what will you worship? Douglas Jones says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus didn't deny that money was a God. That God even had a name, mammon. Jesus affirmed mammon as the sole serious competitor to the Trinity. Jesus understood the antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. He didn't divide the world into left or right, liberal or conservative, envious or entrepreneur. Jesus didn't make mammon just one side temptation for a few like we do. Typical Christians tend to shrink mammon into one of many small idols. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among equals. He singled it out as a direct competitor.
to God. This is all about idolatry. I have two hours worth of teaching on idolatry and what that does to us as people. But but the thinking of idolatry is you become like that that you worship. You know, because we always need more of it and more of it. And it starts to shrink our souls and our lives. And I think God is calling us to ask, what does it look like to worship him rather than the things we think we need or we consume? See, in idolatry, the hard thing is, the more you worship an idol, the more it clings on to you. And idols fight really hard. When you read the Gospels and you read the life of Paul, whenever they confront idols, they're either killed or they have to run out of town because they're going to be killed. If you notice in the New Testament, Paul always goes to places, confronts idols, and there's always a riot that follows because idols like to hold on to us. And the only way to break the spirit of an idol isn't just to manage it, it's to destroy it. And if it's finances, I think that is to then live a life where we give our money away. When Jesus confronts the rich and ruler and when he confronts Zacchaeus, the response seems to be, what will you now do with this thing that is most important in your life? And what's interesting is we see two responses. The rich and ruler says, this is too much for me. And Zacchaeus gives away because he knows that's the way to break the hold of an idol. So what does a life of generosity look like? I'm just going to close with this. I wonder as we go this week practically, if there's a few things for us to think about. What does it look like to be people who offer the generosity of our time? That's one of the most precious commodities in our culture, the time we have. What does it look like to sit across from someone? This ties into Rob's beautiful message last week of the relational aspect of God. To say, what does it look like to give someone time who we don't know well to just listen to their story and pay attention to them? We talk a lot about Sabbath in our community, but we're so busy that we don't have time for others. What does it look like to offer up our homes for hospitality? As was said earlier, to eat with people, maybe who aren't like us. Maybe it's to offer our homes for people to live in them with us. I know a few people in this community, and I love you dearly, who've opened their homes for refugees and new arrivals, and other people have nowhere else to go. To steward the resource of our houses for the sake of the gospel. Maybe it's to ask the question, what do I do with my money? Am I being generous? I've often joked many times here when I moved to Canada that a tax season, they give you money back if you give money away. So a good way to ask is, as I look at my tax return for this year, what was my generosity like with my finances? Or maybe it's the resources you have, some practical things and your gifts that you can give away. But this week, what's it like to take a step during Lent to live a life of generosity? What I love is uh, the call of God to be generous, as I said, is rooted in creation. So God is not asking us to do something that he wasn't willing to do. And we also see that in the life of Jesus as well. It says this in 2 Corinthians, this is Paul. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
See, a generous life starts with us allowing our hearts and our lives to be transformed by the good news of Jesus. If we fully grasp the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, it leads us into a life of generosity. There's an individual part. I'm going to close with this as a communal part before Dina comes to do share communion with us. Uh, this was written by Aristides, who was a Greek statesman, who sent a note to em- the Roman Emperor Hadrian about the early church and how they communally lived lives of generosity. And maybe you need to unpack this in your missional families. This is what he wrote about the Christians. They love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as if he's a brother. If there's among them any who is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they pray and fast for two to three days to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. What a call to St. Clair Community Church. What if we live like this and people outside said, I have no idea what's going on, but there has to be a God because of how they live their lives. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to the table. We surrender ourselves to you. We ask that you would reorient our thinking and our imagination around this idea of what we have. And as we break bread, it seems so appropriate that we remember your sacrifice for us, that you were broken and poured out. And in turn, we as a community get to do that for others. Lord, may we give you what we have and may we remind ourselves it belongs to you and you've asked us to steward it well. In Jesus' name, amen.